Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mullinger Meets Canadians is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. In this episode, I'm absurdly excited to meet a very special and inspiring person. Julia Rivard-Dexter is an innovative tech entrepreneur, an advocate for all things arts and culture, and a former Olympian who competed in the 2000 Summer Olympics in Sydney, Australia, as a member of the Canadian Canoe Kayak Team. Born and raised in North Bay, Ontario, Julia moved to Nova Scotia to compete professionally and fell in love with the province and decided to stay. Needless to say, we're extremely glad she did. She has done so much since her arrival. She's spearheaded and launched numerous successful technology ventures, including as CEO of Google's first North American premiere apps and Pursue.it, a not-for-profit crowdfunding platform that has raised over $1 million for athletes who need support to reach their Olympic goal. Julia's latest venture is as co-founder and CEO of iRead, the developer of games such as Dreamscape, which aim to improve literacy rates for children worldwide. Dreamscape reached 3 million users in its first 24 months on the market. She's currently a member of the board of directors of Nova Scotia Power and was recognized as one of Canada's inspiring 50 women in STEM with the support of the Senate of Canada. Julia lives in Lake Loon, Nova Scotia with her husband Steve and four kids, Oscar, Max, Phoenix and Madeline. Let's meet Julia! Julia, it's so lovely to finally meet you. Hi, it's great to be here. I have so many questions for you as somebody who, like myself, left somewhere else to move to the Maritimes. I guess my first question, though, is that you have done so many things, achieved so many things, and indeed still do so many things between being an innovative tech entrepreneur, an Olympian, an advocate for all things arts and culture, promoting global literacy. So how do you describe yourself when you meet people and they ask what you do? Oh, James, starting with some tough questions. I, I, I guess I would say I'm, I'm a mom first. That'd be my first answer. I, I love to think of myself as somebody who's an innovator. Um, yeah. I think that might be the best way to capture what I'm doing today, for sure. Yeah. That's beautiful. And you have four children, is that correct? I do. Yeah. Four great kids. I mean, that's an amazing achievement anyway, let alone with all of the other things you do. I mean, is there more hours in your day than the rest of us? How would you do all of this? Yes, my, my days are, <laughs> are double everyone else's day. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. There we go. That's the, that's the secret to your success. We got there in under two minutes. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I get up at 5.30 every morning, um, mm. never miss it, go for an hour and a half walk, and that keeps me on track. I, I don't know. I, I, I've really kind of had this philosophy in life, just take one foot and put it in front of the other and don't waste time worrying or second guessing or regretting what you're doing. 
And I, yeah. I think if I were to add up all those minutes, it probably makes up a lot of time. So I feel I was blessed with the ability to do that from a young age, and, and that probably helps a lot. Yeah, I mean, do you think that it was the discipline and the mindset of being an Olympian? And congratulations on all of your incredible achievements. It must be something which obviously you should be extremely proud of. But the fact that you did that and then went on to do so many other amazing things as well. Do you think that it was the discipline from that time that has given you the drive and the passion to achieve so much in the business world as well? I think that's a piece of it. Being able to see that you can push yourself beyond your limits from a very, very young age and also being forced through failure several times without it being completely destructive to your life, you know, in a pretty safe environment, that would help a lot. And I wish for all kids that they have those experiences at a young age. But I think that ultimately it's from a shortcoming. I think my biggest shortcoming is that I can't think too far ahead and I am horrible with memory. So I really live in the moment, you know, you know, five minutes ahead, five minutes behind max. <laughs> and, and I think that really, it helps. It's a shortcoming for sure. It makes my husband crazy. I can't plan anything. <laughs> but it helps to really be engaged in what you're doing in the moment, which I would attribute most of the great things in my life to that, uh, to that, I guess it's a skill, shortcoming, whatever it is. It's for sure a skill because, I mean, one of the major issues with anyone doing anything, whether it be uh, pitching, performing, uh, meetings, briefing people, or indeed, you know, uh, Olympic sports, is people being distracted by things. So I would assume that having that focus must have been something which you've kind of translated that mindset to everything you've done entrepreneur-wise. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I was watching the video of you coming out on stage in St. John and just moments <laughs> before and just that, oh my God, I could feel your heart pounding when I was watching it because just that idea that you have to perform in front of that many people. Um, mm -hmm. But well, this is a bit of an aside, but for me mm -hmm. sitting on, on the line at the Olympic Games compared to speaking on stage in front of people, it's, it's just like right. no comparison. I can't stand <laughs> being in front of people. So I, I admire that so much. But I think one of the things that kind of emphasized for me how important it is to be in the moment um, was, well, I've already said I don't have much of a memory, but things come back when they need to because they must be stored somewhere. When I was sitting on the, the line at the start at the Olympic Games and should have been filled with tons of nervousness mm -hmm. uh, for having to be about to compete for the biggest race of my life, what crossed my mind was the fact that when I used to run around Lake Bannock and Dartmouth, there was a corner that you could see everybody cut because it was beat down. There was a path that was beat down from cutting that corner over and over and over again. And every time I did that run, and it was probably two, three times a week, I would never cut the corner. I would take the extra three steps to go right around on the pavement. And and in my mind that day on the line, that's what I was thinking about. I never cut that corner and everybody else here did. And it was just such a powerful, I don't know, it was a powerful moment for me because it was all those little decisions, you know, that you make that lead to kind of that moment. It's never kind of that moment, but everything that you've done to get there. So yeah, so I, I really do appreciate the ability to be in the moment and slow down and and just see it for what it is. That is so beautiful. I mean, and just such an incredible metaphor for, you know, all success in life. And as you rightly say, I mean, getting yourself into that headspace. I mean, people often ask me, you know, do I get nervous before I go on? And of course, I mean, the one thing is, is that I always kind of say first is that I was kind of more nervous as I was essentially, you know, training 
to be a comedian, that this day wouldn't come. But equally, I think the biggest fear I have is that that little switch that clicks when we kind of go into focus mode, that minutes before we step out on the blocks or walk out on the stage or, or indeed walk into a meeting to pitch something that means so much to us, it's that feeling of, oh my goodness, what if the nervous me steps out and the switch doesn't click? But <laughs> but thankfully, the, the switch clicks, doesn't it? Every time. <laughs> don't you find? You know, it's amazing. Yeah. The moment you step foot on that stage or, you know, sink the paddle in the water for the first time and, and just go, it disappears. And I guess that's just preparation, right? Wouldn't you hate to be there without being prepared? The nervousness would kick in, I think, <laughs> if you weren't prepared. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I mean, it's fascinating the way you describe that drive. And clearly that was something that you must have um, been instilled in you. I mean, you can tell me a bit about your upbringing and, and what gave you that drive to not literally cut those corners. <laughs> hmm. I, I had a great upbringing, super, super family, I such a loving set of parents, uh, you know, Paul and Judy, they're still around. Um, neither one of them was the type of parent to drive you. They would sit back. They were always encouraging, and they believed I could do anything. And they, they instilled a sense that I was capable of doing anything, but never drove me to be more than that I wanted to be. Right. My dad told me from a young age he wanted me to do 21 sports before I was 21. I really have always appreciated that because it gave me a sense of being able to be diverse in what I do. It gave me a sense of being confident in almost anything I want to take on. My mom... I never, I never thought she was the one that gave me my determination, but I was home recently and uh, she had a knee operation, knee surgery replacement, and uh, she was doing her exercises six times a day for an hour. And I was thinking, maybe that's where I got it. Um, yeah, but they were just great. And then a younger brother who's always been the biggest supporter in the world. I love my brother, Alex. He's always kind of just been there, you know, cheering me on. Even though it might have been in a bit of a shadow, I remember the year I made the Olympic Games, I called home to tell everybody that I was going to be on the Olympic team. And he said, you know, Julie, for Christ's sake, Julie, he said, I just got on my condo board and I was about to tell mom and dad. <laughs> He's like, why do you always do this to me? And uh, yeah, so right. I, I just love them to death, all of them. And I think when you have that kind of upbringing, it's so much easier to put yourself out there because there's a safety net. You know, you always have that if nothing right. else. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it kind of creates an almost fearlessness when you know that there's people that were going to be proud of you if you try your best. And it kind of gives you the the almost a safety net and almost like permission to fail and permission to push yourself. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I had a lot of failures, you know, whether it be in sport or just in life. You know, I was kind of a trouble high school kid growing up in northern Ontario without too much to do. And got into a lot of trouble and failed a lot, but they were always there for me, you know, and I, I, I just, I attribute a lot of the fact that I can put myself out there to the fact that I know that they'll always be there for me. That's yeah. amazing. I mean, the kind of trouble that you were getting in, uh, <laughs> are these the kind of things that you worry about your children doing? And if so, how do you feel that you can uh, stop them from getting in trouble in their teenage years? <laughs> well, no, no, I, I, I've told my kids that that kind of badness skips a generation. So I'm not worried at all. It doesn't. <laughs> it's not going to be them. It will be their kids who, who are trouble. So um, I, <laughs> they'll, they'll have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I had an entrepreneurial spirit before, you know, early, early on, I was, you know, finding alcohol in my parents' basement and selling it out of my locker at school, making money and, you know, doing nice. things like that, that 
if my kids were to do it, I would. I don't know what I would do. I, I gave my parents a very hard time. And when I look back, I like to chalk it up to just being an early entrepreneur. But they handled it beautifully. And I am glad I did have support, though, to, to keep me on a path that had some direction. Because without that, I, you know, maybe I would have been a bit lost. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think for my kids, I, sport's always been important to me that they stay in it, whether they compete at a high level or not, it doesn't matter. It's just to be involved in something that gives them some sense of structure, discipline, community. Those things are important. For sure. And I agree. I mean, that was definitely entrepreneurial of you. I mean, supply and demand is what it's all about. Totally. And, uh, Best business uh, and, I've and ever And let's run. face it, you chose uh, <laughs> something legal to sell. It yeah. just wasn't um, age appropriate. Totally. No, no. It definitely, well, it might have been the least profitable business. I was underselling it. When my dad found out eventually that I was doing this, when an older kid at school who was a family friend told his parent and said, you know, I think Julia might be in in trouble here. (laughs) And and my dad came to me and and he was very upset. But when he, what he was most upset about was how I was really undercutting the value. He thought I was selling it for way too little. So it, uh, you know, it was a good learning experience from a young age. And uh, so I've tried to carry that forward. <laughs> definitely, definitely. It's good to learn those things young. And then yeah. as soon as you uh, go into business, uh, you know, That's never, right. never go cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early <laughs> failures and kind of light ones that don't get into too much trouble. Yeah. It's <laughs> amazing. And when you were growing up, you were obviously playing lots of sports in addition to canoeing and kayaking. I mean, you were skiing, you were swimming. Do you remember the moment that you kind of realized that this was something that you wanted to do competitively and professionally? Um, So the Olympic dream was in my mind from a super young age. I used to watch, um, when I was young, Alex Bowman was a huge swimming star in the scene in Canada and Victor Davis the Fast and the Furious, they were called. And well, Alex Bowman was from Sudbury, which was only about an hour away from where I grew up. So I actually got to see this guy, you know, in the flesh and gold medalist at the Olympic Games. And and it just felt like it might be possible, even for a young kid from Northern Ontario. And so I think I had that dream early, early on. Lost the dream in high school when I was injured. It kind of knocked me out of the sport of swimming, which was, which was my sport at the time. And then when I was about 18 turning 19, I I discovered the sport of canoe kayak and reignited my, just that flame to maybe try to drive for the Olympic Games. It was a bit out of touch at the time, you know, starting a sport, you know, when you're turning 19, your likelihood of making it is pretty low. But, you know, I thought, what the hell, might as well give it a go. And I was surrounded by people, again, who, who just believed that I could do it. And and was able to turn that into an Olympic dream four years later. So that was a fantastic ride. That's incredible. And it's such a joy to hear, you know, of someone being around people that were saying that this was possible. So often you hear stories, and certainly, I mean, I remember when I was growing up and I would tell people what I wanted to do. No one ever kind of said that 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 dream was possible. But for you, they did. I mean, what was it, do you think, about your community and the people at the school and the people you were doing sports with that, that, they had that belief or was it just that they had a belief in you? <laughs> um, I think a bit of both. I, I think what it is. So when I started paddling in Northern Ontario, it was not a big sport. And when I decided to want to take it further, my coach said to me, you know, Julie, if you want to be the best in the world, you need to be in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And I was like, well, I don't know where that is. And I never heard of Dartmouth, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I really do want to be the best. So what the hell I'm going to put myself in that place and see what can happen. And, 
I had actually chosen to go to school out in BC. So this was a coast to coast move for me. I didn't even tell my parents, <laughs> went from one coast to the other. And as soon as I landed here in Nova Scotia, I looked around and realized all of the best kayakers in Canada were here and they were all performing on the world stage on the podium. So it just seemed so possible. I figured, well, listen, if I'm practicing with these people and if I can catch up to them in practice and then if I can beat them in a race, then I definitely can be on the podium at the world stage. So it was a culture. It was a cultural thing that that uh, was built through years and years and years of, of excellence in, in a specific sport here. So when I arrived in Nova Scotia, I didn't understand, and I, I think you've had a similar experience and I didn't understand why people didn't think this was like the center of excellence for all things <laughs> like right. all great things happen here and anything is possible and so it was shocking to me when I got out of sport and into the business community that there were so many naysayers about what's possible when you're on the east coast I just believe that this is the center of of everything possible um, right. and I always have yeah it is fascinating and I think it possibly stems from a one of the things, of course, that everybody loves about Maritimers, which is that they're very modest and humble, and that's a, a wonderful trait to have. But unfortunately, that kind of in the kind of Venn diagram of, of life, it kind of seeps over into kind of lack of belief and in some cases negativity, whereby people think that we're kind of hard done by here. And yet, as you rightly say, I mean, when you've traveled the world and been elsewhere, you realize that this is just an incredible place. I mean, the the people, the the beauty, and of course, now, the business community. Can you tell me a bit about when you realized that you were going to stay here and that this was going to be the place that you were going to live your life and indeed start businesses and bring up a family? So when I started paddling here in Nova Scotia back in 96, I never looked back. From the day I landed here, I was not, I was not going back. I, I loved it here. I had an immediate community through the sport and it just bled into a huge set of relationships that I could use for business. So that community was so strong that there was just no reason to leave. Like Life is about people, and the people I loved were here, and I wasn't going to go anywhere else. I think it probably helped that I grew up in a very small town in northern Ontario. There was nothing really drawing me back uh, as well. So that's a piece of it. But I'd been around the world, and, and I just love it here. And, and I just felt like... If I want to be the best in business, why not do it here? People have done it from here, and those people are willing to give you a hand up. So it just seemed like a perfect spot. And I, I wanted to give back. The Maritimes have given me so much in terms of my chance to compete on the world stage. So, you know, when I build the businesses that I'm building, a big driver for me is to have businesses that have come out of the Maritimes that that are globally dominant so we can be proud of those things. Uh, and to build teams, you know, that really have done something great from this part of the world. That's amazing. I mean, I, I love that idea that you had this incredible belief in this place and the people here. And I mean, I know that after graduation, you founded a, a incubation center for independent mm. creatives. Yeah. What kind of drove you to do that? And again, I mean, what gave you the kind of belief that this could be something which, again, was so incredibly successful and so incredible for so many other startups? <laughs> Success can be defined in many ways. And this <laughs> one, it was not financially successful. It was a financial nightmare. Um, <laughs> in my first kind of real business, I bought a, an old fire hall downtown Dartmouth and converted it into creative studios. I was I was working in my basement with two young kids at the time and I felt like a fraud. I'm, I can't be the world's greatest graphic designer here in my sweatpants with my two kids running around. So 
I thought I can't be the only one who feels this way. And maybe if I create a studio where we can all come together as independent creative people, we can collaborate and do some amazing things together. We, we even had a podcasting studio there, actually. Um, and this was back in 2004, five, I wow. guess. That's um, incredible. So you yeah. really were ahead of the curve. I mean, I don't think I even knew what a podcast was then. <laughs> I don't think I knew what a podcast was. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we, what I did was I just looked at what people were doing kind of in the community, what services we needed. And then I just uh, leased equipment and renovated the space and leveraged myself to the end of the earth and built a space for a community. And that was fantastic. We had creative people coming into this space which was a shared workspace. And I think that was ahead of its time, the idea of a shared workspace. There was yeah. not really anything else out there at the time. And for somebody to come in and have a photo studio, a podcast studio, uh, you know, the place to do video editing, everything, it was a big deal. And I tried very hard to extend our reach into the community. So we used to have portfolio shows with students from the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. We'd have professors come in. We'd have artists and speakers come in. So... I worked really hard to to try to make it a community, and the people I met during that phase of my life, I still see and I still get to collaborate with in some cases, and oh, it was awesome. It, so financially not successful, but from a community standpoint, hugely successful. And as you say, I mean, when you're building something, and again, I'm, I mean, maybe at the time you weren't exactly sure what you were building, but ultimately, I mean, certainly in the Maritimes, and in many cases, globally business is all about building those connections and those people that you want to surround yourself with so in many ways it was the greatest possible investment you could have made in your future yeah yeah who knew it right just knowing people at a really deep level you know these weren't just zoom calls where we had to you know have an hour meeting these people would come in and we would chat we'd get to know each other we knew each other's families you know and i think that those connections are so beautiful and you never know where they're going to lead that's yeah. the exciting part. There's a thing I feel that is intrinsically Atlantic Canadian, and that is the belief that we can all kind of put our hands to anything. I feel like we don't get pigeonholed here. There isn't this idea that, well, you do this one thing, so you can't do that other thing, because in many ways there isn't a kind of well-worn path here. You don't get pigeonholed here. Do you think that being here gave you that kind of freedom to do that and indeed to kind of branch out and do so many different things? That's so interesting. I had never thought about that before um, as a quality of being from this part of the world. But mm. but I never felt pigeonholed, that's for sure. Being in Silicon Valley, you probably feel very much like you have to be part of the tech scene and follow that path. Here, there are many different options here. Who knows? It might have something to do with the whole university scene and just the fact that we have such a diverse group of young people kind of coming up and doing lots of interesting things but that's what I love about life you know I started as a kid who loved sport I got into graphic design and the arts I volunteered in the arts as well then I got into technology and innovation and now working on the board at Nova Scotia Power learning about power production and distribution and, and learning about the environment and sustainability and learning about education and literacy. I just love the fact that I've been able to extend deep knowledge in so many different areas of life. And I think that's what always keeps me going and motivated. It's such a privilege to be able to learn new things and to expand thinking in different areas. And actually, you know, I, I think that is at the core of what allows me to function as an innovator is the ability to connect dots from systems that are completely 
from different spaces altogether. And I think we have to do more of that as we go forward and really try to solve some of the world's big problems because we can't do it in silos for sure. So true and, and so beautifully put. And maybe you can, you can tell me a bit about your work with Nova Scotia Power because, again, it's it's incredible. The number of things, I mean, you are truly the epitome of a, of a chameleon in the amount of things that you've been able to put your mind to. And I'd love to learn more about that. Well, the opportunity to join the board of Nova Scotia Power was one that I, I took really seriously. It's such an important space right now with a company that's doing really amazing things here in Nova Scotia. And I knew nothing about it, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> nothing about it. Um, and so after conversations with their executive and uh, the executive at Emerit, it became clear that what I could bring to the table was this idea of innovation and digital transformation. This whole sector is going through massive digital transformation, and it's a very traditional industry. And it's hard. It's hard when you've worked in a traditional industry for years that's been very successful to change your thinking on how how to evolve that business. And so when I saw that there might be a space for me to add value in that area, and, and I've seen that, that that's been happening, that was exciting to me. I hate being involved in things where I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels. And the board and the executive leadership team there were just so dynamic and so interested in innovating and growing and, and sustainability and and just making sure that we're doing the best for Nova Scotia. And so for me, like, it just became this awesome experience. And, yeah, I'm learning so much there. And I don't know where that's going to take me. Who knows? You know, that's the beautiful thing is how do these paths collide in the future? You know, the path of the arts, of sustainability, of education, of sport and competition. You know, I don't know. But amazing, neat, new things will come from all of these different sectors colliding, in my mind, in, in some different way <laughs> in the future, I'm sure. This show is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. NSBI works towards a strong, thriving and globally competitive Nova Scotia through attracting worldwide investment to create new jobs across the province and working with companies in all communities to be more successful exporters. Visit NovaScotiaBusiness.com to learn more about doing business in Nova Scotia. It's truly uh, inspirational for me to see someone that just kind of come to this region, embraced it in so many different ways. And again, I mean, it's just really a joy to watch. I mean, again, I've followed so many things. And again, I, I don't even know where to, I mean, you've again, won so many awards. I mean, do the awards that you win, I mean, you were one of the Global Mail's top 40 under 40. All of these things, do the awards still mean anything, even though you've competed in so many things for so many years? Oh, the awards stress me out. <laughs> and they really do. And and what's behind yeah. that? I've I've tried to dig deep into why why I feel so much kind of stress about awards and recognition. And I, I think it's because there is a piece of me that feels terrified about what it's gonna take to keep outperforming myself in my own mind. You know, like how do I keep pushing my limits to go further because that that seems to be important to me obviously yeah. like I you know yeah. I'd love to say it's not but it, you know I, I I think the proof's in the pudding there every time there is recognition or an award it just makes me think oh now I've got to best that you know like oh mm -hmm. the pressure to best that is it's always there in my mind and I wish I didn't have that and maybe as I get older that will subside a little bit but I, I do want to be intrinsically motivated more than than motivated by external things. And the reality is, is I am still externally motivated, no doubt. 
So I don't know. I hope I hope that is wisdom that comes with age. And uh, not saying that I'm still super young or anything, but <laughs> I, I got years to gain some wisdom. Everything you're saying is so inspiring to me, and I, I know it will be for anyone listening. I mean, what about the days when you don't feel motivated? Do you have any things that you do to kind of snap yourself out of it? And again, I mean, I'm sure this goes back to when you were training for the Olympics. And even now, like... What do you do? Do you have any techniques that you use to get yourself up when you have a rare day where you don't feel like you can cope? Yeah, and there's lots of those days for sure. There's a couple techniques I think that have come to me more recently because I don't think that I'd really figured out how to cope until really very recently and probably through COVID, you know, the the need to cope on some of those really low days. Um, was more right in my face. I I think one of the things was this idea of peeling back the onion. Like if I'm feeling really down, there's a reason for it. And I just have to kind of stop and look at what's going on in my life and start peeling back layers. Okay, well, have I exercised today? Well, no. Well, let me try that. You know, am I eating well? Uh, No. Okay, well, let me try that too. You know, have I talked to my family? Have I invested in friendships are, are things financially healthy? Are things good with my kids and my husband? You know, peeling back those layers. And it's funny because it's usually one of those layers that's really kind of triggering me to feel down. And and if I'm that surgical about it, then I can get to the thing that I need to start investing in. And, and then it's that one foot in front of the other. Okay, well, this is what's bothering me. I'm going to start investing some time in that. And it's usually because I'm ignoring something that uh, that I just don't want to have to face. The other thing that that I've found is super helpful is just this idea that um, the anxiety that we all feel, we label it as something negative, but it also it it's very specifically a driver to get you to do something. So if you can pinpoint where that's coming from, and then just swallow the fear that you have and say, I am going to address that. I'm not going to tackle anything until I address that piece of fear that's in front of me right now it's like popping a balloon almost it disappears it takes the ability to slow down enough to stop and really identify what those problems are but I feel like you can get over those things so much more quickly if you're willing to dissect it a little bit so true and again I mean it's funny I've never looked at it like that and oddly no one's ever put it like that to me before, given how much I ask people uh, for this piece of advice. And that's that's so incredibly profound. I mean, as you rightly say, I mean, it's not enough emphasis is put on the benefits of, as you say, getting out and exercising and clearing your head. I mean, it, it took me decades to realize that. And really only in the last couple of years have I kind of realized that if I wake up and I feel like the stress is mounting about whether it be work and shows or family or or indeed anything, just getting out for a quick run or indeed just a walk and some fresh air and crucially being around water, which is, of course, Mm. one of the things we are blessed with in the Maritimes. It really does clear your head. And it's just interesting that it took me about 30 years to realize that that was the case. Why do you think that more emphasis is not put on, you know, and again, not saying that the exercise can cure all ailments, mental or otherwise, but it certainly helps. Why do you think the government or indeed health organizations don't emphasize this enough? Oh, that's a great question. I would love to have that answer. It's mm. it's not just the government or health organizations, like it's us, right? It's right. it's you, it's sure. me, it's all of us. Why don't we? It took me a long time too. And I, like this is coming from somebody who made sport their life, you know, right. but I went through a huge phase where exercise just lost its importance in my life. And 
it was just so much nicer to go home and have a glass of wine with dinner and maybe two <laughs> and then yeah. than it was to go for a walk at night. And I don't know why. I don't know. Because now when I don't get my walk at 530 in the morning, which rarely happens, like I can feel the effects acutely in, in my life. And it's become something that's very kind of therapeutic for me. But why why is it hard? I, I don't have that answer. And I'd love to know because I think if we could all just take the step to make that a part of our lives, it would really help. It helps a lot. And it's not that hard once you get at it, right? Once you kind of make it a part of your routine. So That's it. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it's funny, as, as I always say to my wife in the morning, when we're kind of going, oh, can we make it out? You've never, ever come back from a run or <laughs> a gym session or a swim or indeed a kayak on the river and said, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. You've literally never. And yet there's a million other things in our day-to-day -day life that we regret. The extra glass of wine at, at 11.30 yeah, that you yeah, possibly yeah, don't yeah. need. But you've never yeah. come back from exercise and gone, oh, wish I hadn't done yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, last night I shouldn't have taken that walk. It's really, really <laughs> put me down today. <laughs> yeah, imagine. Yeah, no, it's weird. It's so strange that we can't logically, you know, capture that and repeat it I, I don't know let's figure that one out <laughs> yeah exactly well if anyone can do it we can so yeah. let's uh, <laughs> let's put our heads together um and on that I mean one of the things that I've, I'm fascinated to hear more about is how and why you founded iRead and indeed how Squiggle Park and Dreamscape came about off the back of that it was founded out of a company that my co-founder Leah and I had called Norex. It was a software development company. We had done software development for other companies for years and built really interesting technologies for amazing companies. And I think that we were tired of being a services company. We wanted to build a product. We wanted to see if we could actually build a product that could scale, that could be recognized globally for something amazing. And we didn't go in saying we're going to solve this literacy problem. Like that was not at all the focus, it was we're, we want to build a product company. And so then it was about, well, what kind of company do we want to build? And we both happened to have people in our lives at the time who struggled with literacy. For me, it was my son, Max, who was struggling at school and in, in reading. And, and I didn't know how to help him. But I did know that school kind of sucks. Like, I knew that it was boring for kids. I saw the resources they were bringing home. I couldn't bring myself to do the homework with them. Like I'm like, I'm not engaged enough to even walk you through this homework. And so I just felt like we could do better. And I felt like technology could be one of the solutions to making it better. Now, so those were early days. That was kind of the initial seeds of it. But since we launched the business back in 2014, there's been several iterations of what we've built. And it, I've come to realize that this is so much bigger than what we had originally thought. Right. I've come to realize that education has never used engineering to help learners move through content in a way that's more effective. We've never used really effectively engineered solutions and tools to make learning fun and engaging and effective still to this day. That's really not available. And so I've realized through the kind of bringing together of my background in technology and education now that there is an opportunity to use really interesting technologies and learning engineering to solve this problem for all kids everywhere. It's also a dangerous problem, right? Like, you know, all the dangers that come with, you know, machine learning and AI and just it's something that we need to make sure 
is done carefully and um, deliberately by people who are not necessarily totally financially motivated. And I put myself in that category. And so it's it's a big challenge, and it's one that I'm very keen to solve. But right now, what we're working on is becoming the infrastructure, the learning infrastructure that video games can plug into to deliver amazing learning content through their fun games that kids love to play. And it, it's a long game. This is not something we're going to do overnight. And it's a big, ambitious goal. But I'm so motivated to make it happen. It's truly incredible. I mean, I mean, why do you think that it hasn't been done before? And why do you think that it's something which the powers that be are kind of either afraid to do or just haven't thought of? And we're probably lucky it hasn't happened yet because we just hadn't, we weren't in the position to do it just societally. I think over the last few years, we've really had our eyes opened a little bit, especially in the diversity and equity and inclusion space in a way that's going to really affect how we build these technologies. But just like all innovation, it's really the coming together of different innovations from different fields that cause this exponential change in a sector, yeah. right? Cameras embedded in phones, um, you know, that it leads to this ex- exponential change of, of opportunity. Education and engineering, exponential opportunity. Right now, one of the big challenges that we're working on that we're trying to crack is the fact that when we're building our technologies on data sets from kids learning, they're learning based on curriculum that's out of date, curriculum that's that's very, very specifically centered on a certain set of beliefs, and it, do, it doesn't necessarily represent different cultures. And I don't feel prepared to build systems that are going to be compounding in their sophistication when we know that we're testing kids on things that are very traditional. And so I think that we have to really step back and start saying, okay, what content are we actually delivering first? Is it representative? Is it inclusive? And then we can start using the data from those sets. Otherwise, you're going to start measuring kids based on one lens that they're expected to achieve in. And that's not fair for all kids because everybody grows up with a different background, different culture, different set of expectations. So I don't know, it's an area that needs a lot of thought and and a lot of caution. And so we can't move too quickly in this one. Like this one is not one we want to see answers overnight. And we need a lot of good heads at the table from a lot of different fields to be able to contribute to do this right. And there's always a fear that it might not be. So yeah. So anyway, it's an interesting challenge. It's a bit of a scary one, but one that's very motivating for sure. Yeah. And I mean, the way in which it's been received must have been a wonderful feeling. Because I mean, again, when you're going into uncharted territory and you're doing something which is so innovative and by its very nature hasn't been done before, when you hit those milestones like Dreamscape reaching 3 million users in just you know less than two years, I mean, those, those things must have been just such a, a heartwarming moment to know that, that A, this thing was doing so much good, but also was a success. Yeah, it's awesome. It's just awesome. I love it. I love the thought of of helping millions and millions of kids and hearing back from teachers and parents. It's just, yeah, it's so awesome. But you know, that part isn't rocket science. Embed some learning and some video games that kids love and surprise, surprise, they're going to actually love learning, right? They actually compete to learn. And, you know, imagine, imagine that, getting kids to compete to learn. Like, why not? It's a beautiful thing. And yeah, super proud of it. And I think with other businesses, there was a feeling like it was a lot of hard work to push it to the market. 
you know, in the last couple of years with some changes we've made, it's felt very much like the market is pulling it, like we're along for the ride. So it's been a lot of fun. I, I love, I've loved that part of it for sure. Magnificent. I mean, it, it's truly remarkable. And is that something that, that you think that you look for in everything you get involved in, that it has to do some good at the same time? Oh, for sure. Yeah, 100%. I can't be involved in something that I don't think is going to have a very positive legacy. There's two things. That, that's one. And I think the other thing that, that's always been critical to, to my motivation is high-performance teams. I just love sitting at the table and collaborating with people that I know are just brilliant and fun and in it for the right reasons and no egos. Well, there's always ego, but, you know, <laughs> willing to laugh at themselves a little bit and, and open their minds. It's The high-performance team piece of it is is so important as well. Yeah. So wonderful. And of course, I mean, now, you know, you've been in, in Nova Scotia for so many years. Um, your children are obviously growing up there. Do you identify as an Ontarian or a Nova Scotian, do you think? Oh, that's that's going to get me in trouble. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> I, I definitely identify as a Nova Scotian. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm not, not, uh, not going to hide that at all. I'm definitely a Nova Scotian and I love my roots. In fact, yeah. I think growing up in Nor- Northern Ontario, there's a lot of very similar characteristics you know, the people in Northern Ontario yes. and, and on in the Maritimes. But yeah, no, I'm very proud to be a Nova Scotian. Yeah. And it's true what you say. I mean, one of the things that I realized when I've toured Canada and, and again, predominantly now choose to tour in very small towns rather than bigger cities, because the small towns and cities in Canada are very much like the Maritimes. Because prior to kind of discovering that, I, all of my experience of big cities was, or indeed Canadian cities, was going to all of the big ones from Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. And it's only once I started performing in small places like Carmen, Manitoba, population <laughs> 3,000 people, not allowed to have a Tim Hortons because they haven't got enough people there. Uh, but I realized that a lot of the things that I attributed to being very much Atlantic Canadian attributes were actually just Canadian small town things. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And I see that in a lot of small towns too, and I love it. I just love that that personality. Um, and it's amazing here in the Maritimes. I think that you know, we, we have that personality, but kind of maritime-wide, which is really interesting, right? It's it's the smaller and bigger towns alike that have it. So it's a really cool place. For sure. And of course, I mean, it's one of those things that with COVID, uh, it feels like the rest of Canada and indeed the world have kind of cottoned onto something, which the, the likes of you and I have known for a long time, which is that this place can offer this incredible quality of life, both from a family aspect, but also from a career aspect, which I think is something which was always overlooked when people in, in other parts of Canada would look at the East Coast. Previously, it was this idea that it might be a nice place to visit and go and look at a lighthouse and eat a lobster, but there's nothing else here. And, and now people have realized not only because of working remotely, but also because of the opportunities. And, and I was in Halifax just, just two weeks ago. And, and again, I mean, just sitting outside the Sutton Place Hotel and, and the buzz of the city. I mean, it's really quite remarkable that we have this place that in so many ways just takes all of the best aspects of, of a London or New York, but then minutes away, you can be by the ocean. Yeah, I know. It's awesome. And next time you're at the Sutton Place, you have to give me a call so we can, you know, collaborate on this whole, you know, lifestyle thing. So yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> it is I, I know this is the beginning of, of, a, of a beautiful friendship uh, and numerous collaborations. And it's ultimately the reason why, uh, why we do this podcast is so I have an excuse to meet awesome people <laughs> like yourself that I've admired for ages and, uh, and get to pick your brain. And I feel like this has been extremely uh, cathartic for me. So, so oh, thank you. That's great. Me too. Love that.
loved it. And I guess my final question, and I always hate asking this of people because I hate being asked it because it's a stupid question, but I can ask it now because I've said it's stupid. Um, <laughs> what's next for you? And, that, and I think the reason I hate that question is because you're doing so many things already. Whenever people ask that of me, I always think, well, is this not enough? But you are someone that I don't feel bad about asking because I know you have your eyes on so many different things all the time. So uh, what is next for you? <laughs> Well, I think what's next for me is to leave this podcast room and thank all these beautiful people who've set us up today and and uh, walk out through the pouring rain to my car and who knows? <laughs> I let you know, James, one foot in front of the other and, and I really mean it. I don't think too far ahead and it's a beautiful way to run life. I, I think that uh, Willie Nelson, I read the, the Tao of Willie uh, very short read, but uh, I'm a yeah. big fan of Willie Nelson. Thanks, Dad. And uh, he wrote, you know, if somebody had asked me when I was a little boy growing up in pretty severe poverty on a farm in the U.S., you know, what's the biggest thing you think you could ever achieve in life? He said, I would have never even come close to what I've actually achieved. And I think there's a beauty in not planning where you want to go too much because I don't think we're capable as humans to realize how far we can actually go. And so we have to be untethered, you know, this idea that we're we're going to go so much further than than we can plan for ourselves. So don't put those limitations on yourself. So beautiful and so true. And it's funny, I'm going to apply that not only to so many aspects of business life, but also I live in a small town, population 10,000, just outside St. John. And we're right on the water and we have a beach right in front of us. And there's an island on the other side. And I am always trying to kayak over to that island and always give up before I get there. But I'm going to make it there and think of what you just said uh, to get there. <laughs> That's great. One stroke in front of the other in that case. <laughs> Don't worry about your feet. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Julia, thank you so, so much for your time, uh, your insights, and indeed for all that you do, not just for the Atlantic Canadian business community, but for everything you do for global literacy. You're a true hero and it's been such an honor to get to know you. Well, it's been an honor to get to know you too. And thank you so much for this invitation. It's been so much fun. Awesome. We'll do it again soon and I'll see you at the Sutton Place Hotel. Um, champagne okay with you? Sounds good. Happy days. <laughs> Perfect. See you there. <laughs> okay, bye. Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. The show is brought to you by Nova Scotia Business Incorporated. NSBI works towards a strong, thriving and globally competitive Nova Scotia through attracting worldwide investment to create new jobs across the province and working with companies in all communities to be more successful exporters. Visit NovaScotiaBusiness.com to learn more about doing business in Nova Scotia. Connect with Julia on LinkedIn or follow her on Twitter at Julia76. To learn more about Dreamscape, go to PlayDreamscape.com further details can be found on the edit website maritimeedit.com and I will see you next time Podstarter 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.